Morning, beloved. Well, welcome back from the summer, summer break, to um, our Sunday school hour. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes over the coming uh, next few weeks, anywhere from 12 to maybe 12 weeks or so, 14 weeks, we'll see. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes, Old Testament, if you go to the Psalms, then Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the title of our studies is The Futility of Life Without Christ. The Futility of Life Without Christ. About a year or so ago, a year and a half, a neighbor of mine who's a high school teacher um, walked up, I was sitting on my front porch, and he knows I'm a pastor, and he says, say, I have a question. He says, I've been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, I must say it's very depressing, to say the least. So after listening to him for about two minutes, um, he, he, he was looking at it, no doubt. I mean, it opens up, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And from a merely um, human perspective, from which he was obviously reading the book, um, from a human point of view, under the sun, S-U-N, life does appear futile. And it's easy for anyone with a wrong perspective on life to to become um, very pessimistic. Um, One Jewish writer, for instance, um, described life as a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. (laughs) British playwright George Bernard Shaw said that life was a series of inspired follies. A poem by Matthew Arnold called uh, Rugby Chapel includes this dismal description of life. Quote, most men eddy about here and there, eat and drink, chatter and love and hate, gather and squander, are raised aloft, are hurled in the dust, striving blindly, achieving nothing, and then they die. American author And journalist Ernest Hemingway, who was quoted as having said, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. After years of saying and writing about how life is without meaning, um, and the only edge we have, Hemingway said, over death is the choice of when, where, and how. He got up in the early morning of July 2nd, 1961 and committed suicide. Hemingway came to the conclusion that he did because he was looking at the world from the perspective of one who believed in nothing transcendent. Therefore, life is vanity. Life would be vanity. That would leave you nothing short of despair. So if there's nothing transcendent, then everything is futile. And there's no good reason to do one thing over another, other than to perhaps commit suicide. It's therefore a great relief, and the very purpose for which we're gathered this morning, 
um, to hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Amen? Or to read Paul's grand declaration in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor's not in vain. Life is not in vain. Life is not empty in the Lord. So long as it's according to the will of God. Amen? And that's what Solomon... The preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, verse 1, teaches in this often misunderstood book, often very neglected book within the church. Now, from the earliest days of the church, teachers have identified Solomon as its author, um, having wandered away from the Lord, having fallen into tragic sin, finally repenting and, and turning to a right and proper fear of the Lord, Um, he writes this autobiographical memoir um, of what he learned during that time. In fact, one ancient tradition says that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon when he was a young man, uh, Proverbs um, when he was a middle-aged man, and Ecclesiastes when he was an old man. We'll notice as we read through that through uh, Ecclesiastes that, that it's marked by uh, first-person verbs such as, I applied my mind, I said to myself, I have seen, I saw, I observed. And who else could say, I have acquired great wisdom, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, admittedly, um, some scholars have wondered why Solomon uh, would mention here all those who ruled over Jerusalem before him when King David, his father, was his only uh, predecessor. Concluding then that the book uh, was written as a fictional royal autobiography where years later an author would take a celebrated figure from history and write in his place and then use that person's um, experiences or well-documented experiences in life uh, to draw forth a, uh, um, to make a spiritual point. But Jerusalem had many men who ruled before David ever conquered the city, including, you remember Melchizedek, king over Salem. Um, It was, of course, the home of the Jebusites, Um, centuries before Solomon. So Solomon could rightly say then, uh, his wisdom surpassed all who've ever ruled over Jerusalem. So we do believe that Solomon penned the book of Ecclesiastes. He'll go on to describe houses he built, gardens he planted, women that he kept as concubines. So in this divinely inspired book, it is entitled uh, Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew title is um, Koaleth, and it means preacher or, or gatherer. Some interpret it as the philosopher, um, but English versions no, normally understand um, Koaleth to mean preacher, um, one who speaks in the ecclesia, that is, one who speaks in the assembly, um, one who speaks among uh, a gathered people. So, 
Preacher is the name from which you get the name from which we get the modern um, title um, Ecclesiastes. So the preacher is what Solomon calls himself, and his message here we see um, summarized problem stated verse two that vanity of vanities says this preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity. So this word you'll see it will show up dozens of times um, as we study through. And the, the Hebrew word um, refers to breath or vapor. It's like uh, the steam that comes out of your mouth, the, the hot steam that comes out of your mouth on a cold winter morning. You know, life is but a vapor. Life is but a breath. Life is but a, a mist. And as you know, Scripture often refers to life as just that, a breath. Back in Job chapter 7, verse 7, we read, remember that my life is a breath. Psalm 39.5, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And as fast as breath gives life, it likewise disappears. Psalm 78.33, so he made their days vanish like a breath. James chapter 4, verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So, in response to the stated problem, all is vanity, um, numerous experiences are made. And Solomon records these. So as to seek satisfaction, as to find fulfillment, he experiments in science, Wisdom, philosophy, pleasure, materialism, fatalism, egotism, religion, wealth, and even morality. And then finally we reach uh, the result of all those experiments. So over the weeks we'll look at his experiments. We'll, We'll study those and we'll see once again how futile life is under the S-U-N and how futile life is without the S-O-N, the Son of God. Now, the original audience of Ecclesiastes is believed to be an upper-middle-class, young adult Jewish audience. Dwayne Garrett argues that, quote, the book was not written for the ordinary Israelite. To the contrary, members of its original audience had access to the king, chapter 8. They devoted themselves to the pursuit of wisdom, chapter 1, and either had or were in pursuit of wealth, chapter 5. In short, the first readers were members of the aristocracy, end quote. And then we'll see a lot of words used from the world of commerce throughout, throughout the book. So what then, we must ask, is the overall purpose and meaning of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the epilogue speaks for itself. Uh, we'll, we'll just look at that now. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil.
So his message, the preacher's message, is basically that all man's efforts to find happiness and contentment apart from the one true God are useless. This life apart from God is meaningless, it is certainly hopeless, and is only filled with despair, ultimately. Now that's an important message, amen? Because from the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis, the Old Testament affirms the fundamental truth that there is a creator, and he is distinct from his creation. We're his creatures. We're not him. And the very essence of life on this earth consists in glorifying and enjoying our creator, honoring him as the one true Lord. He is the sovereign. So it makes perfect sense that there would be a book in the Old Testament that that sets forth what happens when you attempt to live against or without that truth. Perfect sense, amen? Now, if you attempt to, to live life you know, under, under the sun, if you attempt to live life apart from the reality of a creator who brought all things into existence and, and, and holds your breath in his very hand, this is what will happen. You'll go through life trying to find fulfillment for your soul and end up with the same conclusion. Life is empty. So the basic story of Ecclesiastes is an exploration of the different ways people try to find meaning in this life under the sun, apart from God, and Solomon provides us an explanation of how futile that is. Okay, so that's a summarization of the book. And this, of course, is a philosophy that will argue, argue you right into a corner. Right? I mean, this is why it's easy, it seems easy, to philosophize with people who think that life is empty. If you begin with the creator, and begin with the fact that you're made in his image, and you will stand before him when you die, that opens the door for the glorious gospel, without which everything is hopeless. Because everything in this world is incapable of satisfying the deepest needs of man though he strives very hard to try to find fulfillment in these things. So naturally then, the genre of Ecclesiastes, the the kind of literature that it is, is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. The Old Testament canon includes um, three books which are commonly distinguished from the rest as wisdom literature, and that is the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, and the book here of Ecclesiastes. And all, all three maintain that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. It's the root of wisdom. Look at Job twenty-eight, twenty-eight. And he, God, said to him, to the man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13, fear God, we just read that, and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. 
Now, compared to the character of God, the creator, man is clearly exceedingly sinful and a thankless creature. Left to himself, amen? A thankless creature. So as a result, the summarizing exhortation of Ecclesiastes is fear God. Fear your creator. Um, Sidney Gridanus, a uh, uh, popular theologian on hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, he writes, and I quote, Wisdom concer- is concerned with the correct ordering of life. Wise action is that which integrates people harmoniously into the order that God has created, end quote. So while Proverbs is the practical path to wisdom, Ecclesiastes is a, we could call it a reflective path to wisdom. And reflection is, is a characteristic that we'll find in this book over and over again. Um, contemplating as he does the deep questions of life. Another theologian, Gleason Archer, said, quote, Ecclesiastes was written to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview, which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. As a result of the writer's careful examination of man's environment, it leaves us hungry to know God, end quote. Leland Riken writes regarding Ecclesiastes, the most contemporary book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on an acquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex, end quote. Is that not what everyone's after? Knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. Another commentator writes, quote, Ecclesiastes strips away to the ideologies and false hopes by which men and women live and loosens the grip that the quest for wealth, power, and education hold over people. In so doing, Ecclesiastes eloquently turns the reader toward God, the only hope of eternal meaning and life. You know, the first book I ever taught that I studied to teach was Ecclesiastes to a group of men who I, I didn't know if they were really saved or not <laughs> because they seemed to be after all these things. So we gathered them together and we studied through this for I don't know how long. It was a long time ago, but um, it, it really does serve to show your desperate need for the creator and the redeemer that he is. For without which life is hopeless. It really is vain. It's futile. So the, the author here, the preacher, he, he's basically saying, look, I've had a, a, a wide range experience of life. I know what I'm talking about. Believe me. So he speaks from a, a position of experience, a, a position of knowledge, that qualifies him to ask all these hard questions. I know what I'm talking about. I can state with confidence the things I'm about to say. He's basically saying, in other words, verse 1 is there to say that the author author knows precisely what he's talking about. The words 
of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So life under the sun is is the preacher's way of, of talking about life lived on the horizons of this world. That's as far as you can see. It doesn't look above the skies. It doesn't look beyond the ultimate realities of what are made visible. So he provides this realistic evaluation of life under the sun. Life lived apart from God. We strive and we strive. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he's, he's laying the groundwork here in this introduction. He's laying the groundwork for commending you to a God-centered life by saying, look, go ahead, try to live a non-God-centered life, and I'll guarantee you this is how it will end. Empty. Pointless. This is why we hear so many songs. You know, I'm a music lover. And this is why we hear so many songs about the quest for the meaning of life. Amen? You listen to the lyrics, and if you listen to the lyrics, you see this shows up all the time in secular music. It talks about the frustration in this pursuit for meaning, right? There's a Kansas song, Dust in the Wind. All we are is dust in the wind. I could sing it for you, but I won't. I'll spare it. All we are is dust. In the, and that's why the, the musical story sells so well. Because people can identify with the message, this quest for meaning. They can identify with this. And then all the experiences that go with it, and usually has to do with love, relational love, but they don't even know what true love is. Now, I I do admit, I'm a lover of music. Yes, I listen to secular music. Um, I listen to the messages that they're conveying, that they're communicating. And I, and I have to admit, as I listen, I, I oftentimes marvel at the fact that my eyes have been opened by the grace of God to see above the horizon. Otherwise, I'd be singing right along. And I also admit, I do enjoy songwriters who write not so as to try to change the world, but simply describe the world as image bearers of God who, who are fallen and yet not redeemed. I do respect that. I have friends that are songwriters. They're very good songwriters. And it, it makes me appreciate all the more the, the fact, once again, that I've been raised from spiritual deadness and given life. So that's why I, I can enjoy you know, the song, so long as they don't blaspheme God. If they blaspheme God, it's not certainly something I want to listen to. If it's a direct, you know, blasphemy of the Lord. But, I mean, this, this is why the music world is so popular. That's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry. People can identify with the message. You know, I have friends that are musicians, and I have been with them as they've traveled around the world, and I can't tell you how many people come up and they say to this person, you have no idea how much you've impacted my life. Is there some mini Messiah or something? But the, the point they're trying to make is that ident- I identify with the message that you're declaring. So it makes perfect sense. You know, out of people's frustration, especially people who <clears throat> go on 
to reach certain levels of fame or great material wealth, how often do you hear them say, look, I'm trying to find meaning in life by giving back. Have you ever heard that? I'm trying to give back to my community. I'm trying to give back to the world. And also, there, and although there is a certain level of nobility in wanting to give back or giving to society, giving to your neighborhood, or, or giving back to the world, so to speak, even that cannot provide meaning to life. But it does prove they're striving in an attempt to find meaning. There's no meaning there, ultimately. But that's what Hollywood movie stars end up doing, right? Trying to give back. So they always make sure they get in front of the camera to show what they're doing down in Africa or wherever. It's meaningless. It's empty. As we'll see, without the Son of God, life is futile. You know that great English preacher, John Wesley, he once preached through Ecclesiastes, and he ended up describing it, the experience in a personal journal, and he wrote this, quote, Never before had I so clear a sight of its meaning or beauties. Neither did I imagine that the several parts of it were in so exquisite a manner connected together, all tending to prove the grand truth that there is no happiness out of God, end quote. No one will ever, beloved, find true meaning or lasting happiness unless and, and, and until they have faith and trust in and through Jesus Christ alone. For without life, without him, this life is meaningless and hopeless. And this is what we're trying to get after. This is why we're studying Ecclesiastes. To show us once again, over and over again, that life is futile without him. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 20, it says that because of our sin, creation itself was subjected to what? Futility. Futility. When the Bible says futility there in Romans 8... It uses the standard Greek translation of the very word that we encounter here in Ecclesiastes, and that's that word for vapor. It's mist. It's vain. You know, Jesus came to suffer on the cross for all of life's futility. Amen? Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from that curse. He redeemed us from the curse, the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And now, by the power of the resurrection, Christ burst forth from the grave. By way of that resurrection, the toil of life under the sun, God promises, will be reversed. Right? Reverse the curse. Romans 8, verse 21. The creation itself, okay? The creation itself, because of Christ coming and living and upholding the law and laying down his life and bearing the curse of God upon himself on the cross, dying, shedding his blood, 
raising from the grave, ascending, he will come again. And we're promised the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is the regeneration of all things. The Apostle John in in Revelation was given this vision. He sees a new heaven. He sees a new earth. And he hears God's promise. I am making all things new. All because of Christ. The one who was promised from the moment of the fall. The moment man fell, he was promised. He's the seed of the woman. And everything in the Bible is the highway that leads to the fulfillment, the seed promise fulfilled in Christ. Everything thereafter reaffirms that reality, points us back to Christ and Him having fulfilled this, looking forward to this new heaven, new earth hope. So apart from God in Christ, people gain nothing from their toil. That is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself is the very wisdom of God. Amen? He is the wisdom of God. Graham Goldsworthy, he notes that wisdom, like salvation history, here it is, finds its goal and fulfillment in Christ. Wisdom, like salvation history, once again, finds its goal, the goal, the long-term goal, and fulfillment in Christ, the Son of God. So the New Testament, we get to the New Testament. The gospel narratives portray Jesus Christ as following the traditions of Israel's wisdom teachers, yet he far far exceeds them. Right? Remember, they marveled because no one ever taught like this man. Matthew 13, 54, we read this. He taught them in their synagogue, so they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Jesus said this in Matthew 12, verse 42. The queen of the south... You remember who came to visit Solomon, the queen of Sheba. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation, Jesus said, of that generation he preached to, that he entered the world into, and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Secondly, Jesus goes so far as to claim that he is the wisdom of God. Remember what he said in John 14. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. In John 5, he said this to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. That is the Old Testament scriptures. Thirdly, New Testament writers understand the meaning of Christ's person and work in light of wisdom. Notice, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2, verse 2. God's mystery is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're going to read from that in the order of service this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. So Ecclesiastes 1, what does man gain by all the toil? Verse 3, what does man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Answer, nothing. You can work hard, make money, even legacy. Even a legacy. We'll see next week, next Lord's Day, reputation, legacy, stardom. In the long run, it's all forgotten, man. It's all forgotten. What does man gain by all the toil that he toils under the sun, at which he toils under the sun? Nothing. Jesus raises the same question in the New Testament. Listen to this. Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man? Okay, what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his life, that is his soul. You know what he gains? Eternal turmoil. Eternal suffering. You think that suffering in this life is harsh? Because we all suffer, amen? It doesn't compare what man will suffer outside of the Son of God if he simply toils under the sun and never looks above the sun to the creator of the sun. He will suffer eternal turmoil. So Ecclesiastes, when illuminated by the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that God became man, he is wisdom personified, we see... To paraphrase F.F. Bruce, we see this. The personal wisdom of God and thus the stage set for him who declared, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The final solution to the problems of man and the world. End quote. Beautiful, isn't it? Bruce puts it perfectly well right there. So, once again, the reason to study Ecclesiastes is to magnify our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we're after. There's the introduction. Next week, we'll look at verses 3 through 11. And that'll end it for today.